Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of one of LA's leading cement factories. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a singer, a songwriter, a one-time political figure, but above all else, a professional conversationalist. The host of not one, not two, not three, but four highly regarded podcasts, currently in the midst of a string of live dates for the friendly Fire Pod. Hello and welcome, John Roderick. Hi, Mike. Hi. Hello. Thank you for coming. Thank you. This is uh, socially awkward. I, this is the first time I've ever felt like I was on a blind date on the radio. You can't. That cannot be true after all the years. Uh, what is it about this particular encounter? It's because we were introduced on Twitter like three days ago. Yeah. And thank you to at King in Canada. I hope I'm uh-huh. saying that correctly. Um, uh, who said that uh, you were going to be in town? You should come by. And here we find ourselves. When you and I started talking on Twitter, there were a bunch of uh, people out in the periphery mm-hmm. who were excited that we were talking and oh, excited. Oh, were about, you the, getting that at the prospect? Yeah. Here, maybe uh, go a little bit higher on the mic. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty pe. Here? No, no, no. The opposite. Here. You go, you go higher. Mike goes lower. Okay, good. Here we're I just, am. we're doing. It's amazing <laughs> that we're doing like really punk rock radio in a building that, I mean, a floor that no doubt costs in the tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, this place really feels like a spaceship, <laughs> but it also feels like a warehouse. So yeah. I, I feel like I'm at a party in 1984. Yeah, yeah. Except it sucks. Um, I mean, the party does. The building's amazing. Yeah, well, hopefully we can get this party started. <laughs> so I have tons of questions oh, for good. you. I mean, I can ask you about stuff, but uh, sure, ask know. me about stuff. Do I'm you, good are, on that. Are you? Uh, do you have any questions before mm. we get into it? You know, you and I had a little coffee chat at the weirdly exposed kitchenette in mm-hmm. the lobby of this billion-dollar building. Yeah. Uh, about we talked a little bit about modern architecture. We, we talked did. about modernity. Mm. <clears throat> so I feel like I've got your feelings on that. Yeah. Well, uh, if anything else comes up, you just. You let me know. I will. Hey, what do you do for fun? You know, I, I think about this a lot. I may be incapable of having fun in in that sense. I think I know kind of where you're going with this. Yeah, it's um. On one hand, I'm I, I am like professional funster. Everything I do sounds pretty fun. Um, you know, I travel around. I do podcasts. I play rock and roll. I uh, hang out in expensive hotels with my celebrity friends. But do on the you? other yeah, but on really? the other hand, I'm kind of like a, I'm a grouch and, uh, and you know, bipolar. Are you? Yeah. Diagnosed? Uh, yes, and and uh, and after years and years of not dealing with it, of I didn't deny it. I was clearly pretty. It was pretty obvious I was, but I thought it was part of my creative process, you know, to be mentally ill. That is absolutely one of the most insidious things about mental illness. Yeah. Is it, it's very it's addiction. It's very similar to addiction in, in that way, where it makes you think that you it's the worst thing for you, and you think you need it above everything else. Well, I'm also an addict, so I had Sweet. a lot of time on, on those grounds. Those two often go hand in hand. They do. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, right. Uh, being being bipolar or depressed, the number one symptom of it is that you feel like you totally deserve it, or that it is wisdom. It's both your you both have a a perspective above and beyond what normal people mm-hmm, see, mm-hmm. and that makes you depressed, which is logical. Because you're seeing through the matrix in a way that the sheeple do not. Exactly. And also, you can appreciate, how can they appreciate when they're happy if they don't know what it feels like to be truly unhappy? All of the above. So right. it was only after decades of laboring, and oh, and this is the other thing, right? When I was in my 20s, I felt like, well, when you're in your 30s, you can't possibly feel like this. You must grow out of it. And then when I was in my 30s, I was like, this can't last forever. You know, I'm still I'm still a kid. That's why mm-hmm. I, I'm having such a hard time getting started. And then by the time I was in my 40s, it was it be, started to become obvious that it was only getting worse. Yeah. And so I finally was I finally said, all right, let's uh, let's say. That I am bipolar. For the sake of conversation. What would happen next? Yeah. And I had a couple of doctors say, well, it's real easy. You know, we, we try and treat it. Mm-hmm. I was like, sure. Of course you do. 
you scam artists. Big pharma going to get inside <laughs> my brain. I bet you'd like that. Yeah, you know, right. I'm going to walk around like one of those Prozac zombies. Right. Oh, good. Give me happy pills. And none of that was true. They gave nope. me a little pill that was based on, you know, the, the, the psychiatrist was very upfront. He said, we have no idea why this pill works because we don't even really know what bipolar is. Mm-hmm. But it also grows hair sometimes, but give it a <laughs> shot. And yeah, and it, oh, there's a one in a thousand chance it will kill you and make your skin fall off. Yeah. But Side effects include depression. Have fun with that. It's uh it's the it's the whole like lick a frog in the Amazon and it turns out to uh you know, to cure psoriasis or whatever. They just happened upon this drug mm-hmm. in looking for a drug that solved some completely unrelated problem. And it worked. And so now they're giving it to people. And right. I was like, that comports with my feeling about how drugs should be discovered. Oh, I never thought of it that way. Right. right. Like, this isn't something that some mad scientist was like, let's take away all the fun things in his brain. Right. It, it's kind of funny, yeah, that if somebody had just discovered this weird pill, like, somebody's like, hey, do you know that if you take, like, uh, Flintstone vitamins and mix them up with Mellow Yellow, sometimes it cures bipolarism? People would be so on board with super that. Super into it. That's it's how like, skeptical we are of Big Pharma, and justifiably so. Yeah, and the ways. psychiatrist is like, maybe you'll skateboard better, too. And, <laughs> right. uh, but it was a it was a seizure medicine. Medication, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. For people that had really bad seizures. And it turned out, I guess, one person that had really bad seizures and also bipolar was like, wow, I feel better too. And I can skateboard. Mm. So I a said, wonder drug. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, I'll try it. What the, you know, and it's called Lamictal. And it really did, it did something I never could have expected, which was it just made me, it just lifted the ceiling on my depression. So I didn't feel like I was constantly in a cave. Mm-hmm. And it put the, it put the floor back too, yes. so I couldn't fall forever. That was my experience. I have very limited experience with antidepressants. A very long time ago, and that's why I've told so many people like yourself, who I know, like, just give it a shot. Just give that's it a the shot. thing. Think about think about what you're saying. You are afraid of literally taking a pill that will be out of your system in three days if it doesn't yeah, agree right. with you. Right. Do you think that maybe this is some irrational thinking? That's you know some weird defensive childish impulse that's telling you not to do that. It just gives you a basement. Well, and passionate, passionate desire not to lose my creativity, not to lose my perspective on the world. Sure, right? of course, of course, of course. Because especially when you think that depression is the only logical reaction to how messed up everything is. Right. Why would you want to be, why would you want to be free of that and walk around like a big smiley face? Yeah. I am not a big smiley face, still. Right. No, you still seem fairly curmudgeonly. No, I'm, I'm the worst. Do you have the temptation or have you ever had the temptation? I feel like one of the um, things that happens with, I think, particularly bipolar people, maybe manic people as well, is that the drugs work well enough that they convince themselves that they no longer need the drugs. No, it was so obvious um, that I was walking around in a, in a cloud that I'd been in for decades and that nothing in the practical world resolved it like i had a i had a child and my life was transformed by having a child but my depression and mania were not so again like drugs and alcohol you know you're if you're if you're wandering around in a in a fog of intoxication and you think oh i'm gonna get a new apartment or i'm gonna get a new relationship or a new job or i'm going to have a child the most radical intervention and that's going to cure me of my drug addiction. And then you find, oh, I'm still addicted to drugs and now I have a child. Right. Maybe uh, I'm a drug addict. Yeah, right. And it was, it was a similar thing. Like I was underserving my baby because I just wasn't able to control. I mean, you know, when I was manic, I was up for 20 hours a day. And when I was depressed, I was up for four hours a day. Right. And um, so... So having you know having a kid obviously like uh, blew my mind, mm-hmm. and I'm still you know, I'm still trying to navigate like how how to be the best mentally ill person I can. And how, still, how old's the kid? One kid she's, still. She's eight years old. Okay, now. I have a seven and a half, so I kind of yeah. So you know they take a lot of they take a lot of attention. They do. Yeah. Very needy. But I I, I never once thought, uh, have thought just as when I quit doing drugs and alcohol, it wasn't long before I realized. There was nothing waiting for me back there. I got, I milked that cow, right? I got everything out of and being, some, right. of being uh, high and messed up. Um, and so to go back over there looking for something, um, there's nothing there. And to, right. to stop taking my mentally ill pill 
right. in order to go back to being mentally ill? It, no, no thanks. Well, that's good. It sounds like you're having a rational response, which is... One of the few. One right. of the few. I, did I remember, do you know anything about this? I could swear that at one point in the 90s, at the height of, you know, Prozac being, uh, um, you know, Prozac, but also a topic of conversation and a thing in the culture, that some British music magazine got Bernard Sumner from New Order of course. to try... Prozac, <laughs> like just as a, it, like I'm sure, like Morrissey said no, and right. Robert Smith said Robert no. Smith so then was they like, went, no thanks. Yeah, they know. Thank you very much. I like my Liz Taylor hair. I'll just stick with this and ride it into the grave. And so I, I remember reading this article that he agreed to do it for a month, just for the magazine article. And we had the experience you did of like, oh, my God, I don't need to be miserable all the time. And I want to say it coincides with my personal favorite New Order song is Regret, yeah. which is fully about a depressed person finally realizing, oh, my God, life is actually I'm in fucking New Order. This is right. amazing. Right. Why did I do that to myself? Yeah. I, I, I watched a lot of my friends in the 90s go on Prozac looking for that solution and and finding that it really disrupted their lives. They're mm. You know, they kind of got a shroud over their eyes you, that you could see, right? Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd look at your old friend and go, what's going on with you? And they're like, I'm on Prozac. And it was like scary to imagine yeah. that you would do that to yourself. Cause you, it did feel it, it. It's where we got the idea that these drugs affected your creativity and that, that um, you would lose something. Yeah. And I think that's true of schizophrenia drugs where people do try to get off of them because the drugs really tamp down the thing tamp down their their yeah. amazing um perhaps psychedelic but but still like invigorating yeah uh life but this drug this bipolar drug just evened me out yeah it just took away the cuz you know I went to some of my I went to my bandmates and said like so the doctor says I'm bipolar and they all just laughed you know fell out of their chairs like oh really mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, then they started telling stories to each other, like, remember the time that he, you know, that he <laughs> drove across the desert with the with the tank on empty because he was sure there was a gas station with better gas prices just up ahead in the fog? Uh-huh. Uh, just that kind of stuff where where we all had a good laugh, but it was at the expense of what a, what a miserable uh, asshole I had been. So you mentioned, <clears throat> for, for people who don't know, you know, you obviously have a musical background and uh, you are a Seattle guy. You were around there at the tail end of what we think of as like the Seattle thing. No, I was there right in the heart of it. Were I moved you? to Seattle in 1990. Oh my goodness. You must have seen so many clowns running around. Town. I really did. <laughs> but I was, at the time, I was, I was on drugs, um, which seemed, uh, when you're Generation X and when you're in Seattle in 1990, it feels like being on drugs is an absolutely appropriate mm-hmm. response, but I was messed up, so I wasn't able to, I didn't have an apartment, I didn't have a guitar, I couldn't have been part of the scene, uh, I was too, I was too screwed up. And Kurt Cobain is just a year older than me, so I came up in that, in that universe too, I grew up in Alaska, mm-hmm. uh, but I was not somebody that, that was dedicated to anything or good at anything i was just uh i was a member of the scene right i was at all those shows but as the guy in the back that was like this band sucks you know i never saw nirvana right in your defense you were right about a lot of i really was there were only four (laughs) good bands and you've heard of them all yeah right uh but i never went to the i never went to see nirvana because i was like too cool i thought you know i was just like nirvana that's for kids and um so I was at, but I was, you know, I went to five, six shows a night. Yeah. Or uh, I'm sorry, five or six shows a week. All right. Because I worked, I worked in clubs and, yeah. and, um, and that we had that reciprocal rela- relationship that punk rock clubs all have, which is like, oh, you work at the off ramp, you know, you can come into the show. Right. Uh, and I didn't actually start my first band until the late nineties when I got sober. You, oh, you've been sober that long. 24 years. Oh, now. that's great. You strike me as the kind of person that I've always been sort of fascinated by and very jealous of. You seem like somebody who you're saying you didn't have a guitar, you know, maybe weren't a fully formed musician when you showed up. But you strike me as a person who has impeccable taste. Hmm. Which is a curse, too. Okay. Uh, As a creative person, especially because, um, and I think it was David Sedaris uh, that, sort of pointed this out. He's a very tasteful is, man. He is super tasteful. And yeah. the problem as a young person with taste mm-hmm. is that when you start to make stuff, 
you have enough taste to recognize that what you're making is bad. Right. Because you know what's good already. Mm-hmm. And you, so you've cultivated that as a young person. And then you start to write or do poetry or, or make music. And you're like, this is terrible. And if you don't, if you don't have the dumb confidence to push through that, yeah, to actually develop skill, your your taste can be a, a like a, a like a wet blanket on your on your creative life. Yeah, I understand that. But if you have awful taste, then the first song that you write, you get really high and you listen to your own four track of, it and you're convinced it's the greatest thing ever, and you never progress that. So and there are a lot of bands like. Um, you know, like Oasis, who are just convinced from the outset that they're amazing. I said so that's not exactly true. I'm a, a really big fan of theirs. Okay, I, break it down for okay, me. Okay, so I find Noel Gallagher fucking fascinating. Both of the brothers are just the greatest interview of all time to this day. The right. guy had an 18-month run of songwriting, which we can debate about how great it was. I think it was better than most people tend to think. Uh-huh. But his, I'm a hater, but yeah, let's... His actual his actual story, there's a lot of bad stuff. And, and the, 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 you were talking about ceilings and, and basements. Yeah. I mean, those guys fucking ripped off the coca-cola theme song on their first album and didn't pay like didn't even try to get it cleared so that guy was not doing much you have to take him at his word even though he he does spin yarns he was a roadie for the band inspiral carpets oh i saw them in the in the early 90s what did you think of them i loved them but i um, as grunge was happening around mm-hmm. me, I was fascinated by Britpop oh my, and, okay, and well, psychedelia. Look. All right, all right, all right. We'll talk about that. And you know, I was actually in, um, in like the Algarve and uh, in southern Spain in '89 when all that Happy Mondays oh, uh, okay. raver stuff was the happening. Dancey shit, right? And so I did the whole trip out and dance all night with glow sticks and. Uh, with uh, you know, dancing with people that were covered in in day glow paint. It well, that wasn't my scene either. But I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, I, mean this I, is what I, we're doing. I, I like a party as much as anybody yeah, else. Sure, let's go to Goa or whatever. So the story goes that Noel Gallagher um, was a roadie for Inspiral Carpets and saw that they had a following and were making a living at it. And he was like, these guys are terrible. I know I could at least do this. And so he went home and I think pretty rationally, I don't know how serious he was about music or playing guitar at that point, wrote songs and came up. He wrote Live Forever and one of the other big singles. And he's like, "Okay, those are good enough. I know that those are good enough to be successful songs. And he was always transparent about the Beatles, the Who and the Sex Pistols are the three best bands. Why isn't everybody just doing a combination of those three things? So I don't disagree. So I do think that he... I mean, yeah, it went to their head in the most massive way. And he's very candid about how it was good for him that their third album flopped. Otherwise, he would have been wearing a cape everywhere <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> I had the exact same experience. And this is something, I mean, every time someone points out that I have any commonality with Noel Gallagher, I'm furious at them. But now we've, now we've done it again, which is that the thing that got me actually writing songs in Seattle was going to five shows a night. Mm-hmm. God, oh, per week. Why yeah. am I doing this? I, I it's my medication. It gets caused my brain to you short. You got to get off that shit, dude. But, uh, <laughs> but five shows a week and realizing that three bands a night were all terrible, that the only good bands in all of Seattle were Mud Honey, Grunt Truck, and Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that was it. Everybody else was terrible. Not a Toad the Wet Sprocket man. No, no, not really. I mean, I love the Melvins, the Melvins too. Okay. But I, I had that feeling of like, if these guys are all selling out these big rock concerts and they're living this incredible life, it seems, where they're wandering around with nothing on but a scarf <laughs> and their mom's velvet, you know, uh, pajamas. Yeah. I can do that. I can pick up a guitar and play songs this dumb. Yeah. And I, and I, that was what gave me the confidence. It wasn't my own, um, talent as mm-hmm. much as it was a kind of anger and frustration at how bad everything else was. Yeah, that's been, I think, the animating force in anything I've ever done creatively, including music, is I know I can't be as good as the good guys, but I yeah. can for sure be better than the bad guys. And there's a line somewhere where there are a lot of bad guys that never get popular, mm-hmm. but whatever that middle part of the of the um, Neapolitan ice cream is, yeah. where they're terrible and popular, yeah. you feel like that's that that's going to drive me. Well, and that was the time. Of, I've can, I'm not aware of there ever having been a scene before or since where, I mean, everybody got a deal. Mm-hmm. Hair metal, but it wasn't concentrated in one city in that same way. Where I were mean, you from? Where were you at that time? So I'm in suburban New Jersey, but commuting to a high school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Oh, 
had been. Now, this is why... What's that? Both worlds. Yeah, two very different worlds that are about four miles apart from one another. So I, uh, this is what I, what I mean when I say that I've always been jealous of people like you who have taste. I was reading up on you, and there are certain parallels I see in our, in our lives. Like, for example, I read a story about you telling a sub-pop guy, let's talk turkey, putting your feet up on a table as a child. I was at one point in a meeting with some manager who'd we don't have to get into his credits, but had a couple, you know, platinum albums on the wall and decided I didn't like the cut of his jib. So I walked into his bathroom and urinated as loudly as I possibly could into the porcelain to make sure that he would hear. Oh, yeah. Like it's the exact same shit. The thing is, Too punk. you were making music that was of the time and that people liked and people responded to because you had taste. Mm. I was a hair metal guy oh, yeah. who switched to Brit pop because I was so anti-grunge and it was the only way I could find to still wear silver leather pants <laughs> and make music in 1993 or right. whatever it was and I always feel like I've been victimized by the fact that the first album I ever loved was Invisible Touch by Genesis yeah and I feel like I made music that was really good and really true to my roots my roots are terrible right stone pony in the streets <laughs> 90 second Y in the in the sheets <laughs> Um, well, and, and there were competing, there were kids in the early nineties in Seattle that were all about Brit pop. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't I think, that. I was listening to Suede on the way in this morning. I don't think anybody can argue with my bloody Valentine loveless, right? It was the thing that if you heard it, mm-hmm. you didn't have to hear it, right? If you were in the grunge scene, it, you could have avoided it. But if you did hear it, you re- you, it had to blow your mind, right? It had, yes. to, it was a thing that, that encompassed everything everybody was trying to do this is what it sounds like if a rock band is melting yeah this is what it's this is if you want to melt somebody's face like Mm -hmm. here it is it's not it's not coming from um it's not they'll melt they will melt your face no matter what you care about yeah as long as you believe in guitars. They were rehearsing one time at a place I, I used to, this used to be the Little Sirius XM Studios, and I was able to sneak into the room when no. they were out just to look at Kevin Shields, the, the floor. Yeah, right. His just to look at the pedals. Four different pedal boards yeah. that all have 50 pedals on yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I did that, too. I climbed <laughs> up on the stage after their show and was just like, come on, you yeah. got to be kidding me. Yeah. But he seems to use them all. Yeah, he's, just, he's tap dancing up there. Eric Johnson is a guitar player who does the same thing. He yeah uh, he's also a he's also a, an avid collector of guitars I know I because I know I know people in the guitar selling business mm-hmm. and Eric Johnson comes up all the time as like wow this guitar is really nice and really expensive who do we sell it to <laughs> yeah oh Eric Johnson <laughs> what about that yeah what about that white kid from Texas who wears the Jimi Hendrix jacket yeah um so uh, yeah let's talk about some other stuff. Uh, you were in town because you're making an appearance. You're on a string of dates with your friendly fire podcast. You're doing a um, a live taping of that. That is a podcast that just discusses war films. Well, yes, but um, when we started it, it 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 started as a kind of lark, you know, like let's watch old war movies, and mm-hmm. you imagine that it, you're going to watch William Holden in some dive bomber movie about World War Two. But as soon as you start exploring, like, what constitutes a war movie, you get into all this. I mean, it's, a, it's a, an interesting and valid question. Um, is Starship Troopers a war movie? I think, oh, hell yeah. Oh, I my think God, it yeah. clearly is, right? Yeah, most definitely. But there are a lot of, um, and there are a lot of science fiction movies that are war movies. There are a lot of movies about war that kind of aren't. I mean, From Here to Eternity, which is one of the classic war movies. It's a two and a half hour movie and two hours and 15 minutes of it are just about this love triangle between some soldiers in Honolulu uh, before Pearl Harbor. And the last 10 minutes of the movie are the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Is it a war movie? It's on the list of all the of like top war movies that have been made for the last 70 years. Right. But, um, Casablanca sort of fits in that scene, right? Exactly. I mean, it's a great movie. What is it really? Is it is it a is it an adventure movie? Is it a soap opera? So we started to include all these movies that are war adjacent, and and started to discover. You know, why why did we want to do this in the first place? It wasn't just that we we liked um, sort of machine guns. We started to dig into what are war movies doing for us as a as a an audience why do we want to watch them um what are they telling us about war 
some of them are recruiting tools. Some of them are, um, I think, I think war movies as interrogations of war, uh, didn't exist until, till after world war two, where there, there were films that looked at war with a, with a harder eye. Mm-hmm. The one exception that comes to mind, uh, yeah, maybe you've revisited more recently than I have, All Quiet on the Western Front. All Quiet Front. on the Western Front, and yeah. <clears throat> which has been remade a couple of times, and we watched it pretty early on in the show. But even All Quiet on the Western Front, I mean, it's a little, it's, it's, it's heavy-handed, but it also is, um, I mean, what's fascinating about it, of course, is it's told from the German perspective, but it was a film made for, the, for an allied audience. So um, it's about World War One. One, but was it was the movie made around about World War Two? A, a little before. Okay, but it had a you know the book was obviously um, pretty critical, but books had always been a vernacular that w- that could be more, uh, y- y- they could be for a more intellectual audience, mm-hmm. right? I mean, movies were still sort of a populist medium. Yeah, for sure. If a, if, a, if a popular novel is getting adapted into a Hollywood movie for the first, like, 50 years of Hollywood, it's getting dumbed down and, yeah. sh- and sugared up. Super dumbed down. Right. Except, except in this case, right? This is, and that's why All Quiet on the Western Front still resonates if the, if the movie doesn't. I mean, because everyone in the, in the movie is speaking with a very strange mid-Atlantic accent, <laughs> considering that they're, you know, they're like, I say, why don't we get in there, get in the fight, boys? It's a weird watch now. Let's kill some limeys. Uh but it um but we still talk about it because it it was so groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I mean you can watch the movie Mash which in 1970 was like an incredibly popular and biting satire and now it seems like a weird frat boy movie. You know, there's a lot of misogyny in it and a lot of just hijinks that don't really play. Uh, it's it, it's as much a precursor to Porky's as it is to Apocalypse Now. Oh, that's fascinating. I've never seen it. I watched every episode of the TV show 15 times, but I never saw that. I know it made Elliot Gould a sex symbol. It did. So I find something. him very sexy. Mm. It's a big mustache. He's, he ended up, uh, he was dating Barbara Streisand at the time. Who was also sort of inexplicably a sex super, symbol. Super, super sexy uh, lady in 1968. 70s were a wild time, man. But Underrated. My, my co-hosts on Friendly Fire are... I'm I'm now 50 years old. Mm-hmm. One of us is 40 and one of us is 30. Oh. So we get this generational um argument too. I mean the youngest one of our group is he's very smart and very woke. And so oh. looking at all this stuff from the lens of someone who grew up in a universe where a lot of things weren't tolerated, right? They weren't it, you didn't even take the time to wonder about them because they were just off the they were they were on the list of forbiddens. Yeah. And then somebody like me who grew up Generation X in this sort of post-baby boomer hangover where we didn't really have any values at all. You know, we were just, all of our values were just sort of sarcastic. Mm. And we talk about that sort of intergenerational um, uh, difference in the way that we consume media and how you... How you look at the histor- historical context of when the film was made and also about what era the film was made. So there are a lot of movies in the 60s made about the 40s. Right. And you're looking and are they trying to recapture the 40s or are they trying to take a hard look at the 40s? So I don't know. The, it, it's a really wonderful show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, and it ha- the, the purview has expanded over time. So we watch a, a great variety of movies and look at them from a, from a lot of different viewpoints i feel like in a sort of way this reminds me of i, I don't know if it was the book uh was it uh guns germs and steel, steel right? right and then there was like salt and there's like all these books that come along that are like actually if you think about it this one thing that you take for granted is the entire story of humankind right. and it's amazing that they there were 50 of those written and they were all like plausible. Yeah. If you read them, you're like, oh my sure. God, it's it all comes down to tap water. Holy fucking yeah. shit. As you soon know? as you tame one goat, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're on the you're on a, a path to build skyscrapers. So I gather that you got into this and you, you go, Well, we'll see how far we can take this thing and now you're finding that it has legs and that it's opening the uh, I, I guess in what specific way is it affecting the way that you're thinking about the world or the past or America beyond what you would have thought when you go, let's just watch more movies and talk about them. 
Well, I mean, there's a reason that we have war movies, and there's a reason we have war. Mm. And I, I, it's fairly, um, it's seductive as a as a liberal to think that war is a pathology and something that we should, that we can and should and will one day eliminate. And it's entirely the the province of sword rattling, um, flag waving. USA America bad guys and a capitalist enterprise that's there just to build missiles. And, you know, it's from a leftist perspective, um, it's very easy to sort of uh, absolve yourself of any complicity in war because you can just pass, you can just put that blame on the, the war machine, the yeah, military, the side of complex, the political yeah. spectrum that you feel is responsible for all evil. Mm-hmm. But of course, war performs a you know, an overarching role in the the building and and dismantling of different civilizations and the the promulgation of culture and and likewise the colonial enterprise, mm-hmm. which right now it's very fashionable to disavow in all of its um, in all of its tendrils. Right, colonialism equals bad, but of course there are a lot of things that fall under the rubric of colonialism, including vaccines right so um so it's there isn't a black and white way of looking at war and the more that you delve into it and the more you see how we all benefit and are complicit in maintaining war as a as a as diplomacy by other means Mm -hmm. uh it, it the goal of the show is not to come out of every episode knowing full well what was good and bad, what was right and wrong about sure. the war that's depicted, the time the movie was made, and how we feel about it now. It's much more um, to walk out of every episode and every show uh, thinking hard about about all these complexities. Yeah, well, and I think that we're looking at it in a new light nowadays without ever really thinking about it. I think that we did culturally kind of swallow the war to end all wars, or at least the sequel, World uh. War <laughs> <laughs> World War Two. you know, I was certainly, I felt like the, I don't know if the myth is the right word, but like the, the, the story that we were following culturally was that we weren't, we had a lasting peace kind of forever as long as like the Russians did. Right, as long as we kept our nuclear warheads pointed at each other. Yeah, I guess so. But even at that, that there were the vast majority of the world, basically the right-thinking, liberal-minded, rock-and-roll, Coca-Cola-loving people of the world vastly outnumbered the the evil Cretans. Right. And so it was just a matter of time until our goodness sort of spread to the world and everybody lived happily ever after. And while, thank goodness, I do not believe that we are any closer to like World War III nowadays than we were 10 or 20 years ago, I think we can all see, not just in America, but if you're following world politics at all, how these sorts of situations get going as nationalism becomes this sort of international uh, uh, flu. Right. That's you going you never would have thought in 1990 that by 2020, I mean, except if you read George Orwell, right? But but the idea that nationalism would be appealing to millions of people who have never lived under nationalism, uh, but that it that it will that it will always cycle back, that there will always be authoritarians, that that will always appeal to people who who think that the problem is we don't have order and if you can just get order if you can inst- if you can install order mm-hmm. then all of the all of the instability that you feel in your life will be will be um encompassed in a new order yeah. a new order right we hear that over and over um well, isn't it, I mean, the classic divide of liberalism and conservatism is just um, things are kind of fucked up, but we just keep pushing forward and we can fix them all. And things are kind of fucked up, but if we just go back to the way they were, then we can fix them all. Right. Or stop the or stop the wheel. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. But but I mean, th- I think we're finding even on the left a lot of uh, a lot of ideas that are pretty illiberal. Um, yeah. The, the left right now is promoting a very similar like we're we're not interested in in um, understanding the rationale of the whatever 52% of the population that we, that we 
uh, disagree with. We're just going to sort of impose our worldview on them because it's better. It's better for them, too. They just don't realize it. Yeah. And that's that's similarly like illiberal. Yeah. Li- uh, liberalism always having been let's let's figure it out. Right. Let's um, the more education you have, the more dialogue there is, the more people will naturally gravitate to justice. Mm hmm. Is the is the original concept? It's the one that we grew up in yeah. in a Cold War world, and to think now that that um, that justice would be a thing that we just felt that we understood perfectly and could legislate that you're just gonna you're just gonna pass legislation and rub people's noses in their own uh, their the, in the pee that they left on the kitchen floor or whatever. Yeah, uh, that's not gonna that's not gonna work either. No, it is crazy because I'm a contrarian by nature and I always think that there's, you know, well, everybody thinks it's Y, but it's really Z. Sure, you're but, wearing a Marquee Moon t-shirt and it's 2019. Of course you're a contrarian. <laughs> you're like, no, still television. Damn it, still. It's still it's still a wonderful album. <laughs> but, uh, y- 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 you know, uh, it really might be as simple. Okay, here, the most optimistic, positive way I can say what I'm trying to say here is that Humankind has not yet learned how to handle the responsibility of being able to talk directly to one another across states and nations without the mediation of a top-down media. Mm. That's the best possible way that I can say it. The worst possible way, which I think is the more likely scenario, is that we cannot handle the responsibility of – I it is I, – I hate to hear the sentence coming out go of my on, mouth, but just on. like somebody – Maybe it was Scott Ackerman just made a tweet one time that was like drew, drew a direct line from enabling a comment section on a newspaper website to World War Three, uh-huh. and you know when you read something and you're like, oh, that's stupid, but it sticks in your mind for some reason. Yeah, that's and you why go, you don't go on 4chan. And you go, <laughs> have you been on 4chan? I've spent years on 4chan. Why? What's and going on over there? I've never, I've never been. I'm not interested. But tell me, tell me what I'm missing. Well, it's just it's pure libertarian um open forum mm-hmm. where you're protected both by anonymity uh and uh by the fact that at least originally it was like snapchat at the end of the hour or after a certain number of comments a, f- a thread would just disappear so you had both anonymity and also no no record uh-huh and it uh it it developed within the within the site a, a culture of its own that had its own mores, its own expectations, and a lot of those were culture jamming and um, and sort of like ag- aggressively amoral, mm-hmm. not immoral, but but uh, just what can you get away with? Yeah. What are the limits? Right. No, I understand amorality. What do you mean by culture jamming? Oh, um, the the perception that culture is either monolithic. Or driven by an ulterior motive, um, you know, it's it's why conspiracy theories are so popular. The idea that things could be just happening by hook or crook, no one knows what's going on. Everybody just shows up to work and does stuff, uh, isn't as um, isn't as appealing no. as the idea that there are some Jews somewhere in a windowless room who are deciding whether or not you get a promotion. Right, and so. Taking you know taking that to its furthest extent, if you can get if you can get in there and um, create create misinformation. I mean, it's sort of what we accused the Russians of doing in the last election. The idea that they don't they didn't have a goal. They weren't trying to accomplish um, any specific end beyond just ruining our system. Yeah, spreading dissension was the highest thing they could possibly aspire to. Yeah, and just, I mean, whether, they didn't think Trump was going to get elected. Mm-hmm. They thought it would be Hillary. They just wanted to de- destabilize the United States. And, yeah, it's asymmetric warfare. And at the, at, in the early days of 4chan, they thought of themselves as, um, and, I, and I say, you know, I was always there as a lurker. I never was a, uh, I never was a participant. Mm-hmm. It was just fascinating to watch a culture of people that were, <clears throat> I believe, trying to make a, a valid point, trying to do something in the world that, yeah. um, that, that, and trying to kind of express a nascent worldview that they couldn't a hundred percent articulate. What happened What's what, what happened is that that website also got co-opted. I mean, there are threads on there just every day, like let's compare 
dicks and then a bunch of pictures of people's penises. And it's clear that that, those threads are being started by somebody in St. Petersburg who's like, what would be the best way to undermine the confidence of a bunch of hackers who actually maybe have the skills to be dangerous? Let's just put a thread every day with a bunch of pictures of people with big penises and make it seem like they are just members of this anonymous community. And so every, you know, every one of these 22 year old kids, that's sort of a neck beard or a, or a, um, or an MRA or something, you know, they see these site they see these threads week after week and they're just like, my penis is so small. You know, it's the, it's the absolute most basic level of, chipping away at the confidence of people that might pose a threat. Yeah. So 4chan is garbage now, but of course it always was. Right. And this is, that's what I said, this is we have unleashed the id of humankind in ways that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Pandora's box. I, I can't think of a clearer example in human history of the, the Pandora's box than the internet. Yeah. Well, but we, we put such a, we put such an imprimatur on the idea of democracy, which has been the American uh, buzzword since it's since our inception. It's the Enlightenment buzzword: democracy. Democracy is the uh, solution to tyranny, and we we clung to that even as time went on, and you realize absolute participatory democracy is. I mean, all the old philosophers. We're terrified of it because mm-hmm. it's mob. It's mob rule. It's mob rule. It's the rabble. Yeah. And so there was always an oligarchy that sort of um, mitigated democracy. Right. That's the American model. That was the that was the British model. It, there's always a parliament, and democracy takes the form of we'll elect these people who will then represent us, but they will be members of a certain class who have spent their youth educating themselves in politics like they are a, they are a professional and in, and in a lot of cases cultural class of people who are going to do our governor governing yeah but now we're very suspicious of that class right because they're wealthy and they're um and they're homogenous and they and they're worthy of suspicion they're worthy of suspicion but they're also people who have who are professional rulers I mean, it's what they we, and we and we despise them for their for their private schools and their cultural hegemony and their their racism and whatnot. But they also know how they they've made a lifetime study of governance in the same way that someone would learn to play the guitar. We don't we don't let anybody be a guitar player because people that are bad at playing guitar, we don't like to listen to what they do. But we have always maintained the idea that you could just pluck somebody out off of the street, a labor organizer or somebody with a good heart, and elevate them to Congress, and they're going to do as good a job as a political science major who came up through the Democratic Party machine and, and has a law degree. And that's, the, that's kind of the farce of the American worship of what had always been potential democracy, but what the internet has done is given us a- actual a look at what actual democracy would be. Yeah, which is just millions of people screaming at each other, people that that have no idea in the world what they're talking about. Of course not. You know, somebody down in a in a trailer park in Arizona who spring um, who spring vinegar into the sky to counteract the chemtrails yep his vote cancels years out yeah that's right and his and his twitter account is you know has fifteen thousand followers so what are you going to do about it yeah it almost just seems like you know there was that quest for the perpetual motion machine that it's just like every political system is one of those and it's just some of them are going to sustain themselves longer than other ones but they're all they're all going to to teeter i mean you mentioned that i um, ran for office, and I did yes. um, four or five years ago. I ran for Seattle City Council, which is a big job, right? Seattle has a very strong city council, and I ran citywide. I wasn't just running from a district, so I was trying to get a couple hundred thousand votes um, in a in a pretty big and progressive city. 
and I it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I'm not naturally suited to running for office. I'm a I'm a wonk about how cities run, and I was very excited to get in there and and talk about sewers and uh, and the power grid and how we're gonna. Um, how we're going to plan for growth and all that stuff. What right. I, what I was governing and campaigning are two distinct skills. So different. And I was terrible at campaigning because I don't like to ask people for money. Mm. And I don't typically want to stand up on a bar stool and say, everyone vote for me. Like I'd love to stand up on, on a bar stool and say, everyone here's how sewers work. Yeah. Uh, but campaigning was hard. But what I realized is that there is a, Seattle's a liberal city, right? There's not a conservative person in it that would raise their head. But within that culture, there are two very distinct groups. There are the, there are the progressives and there are the, uh, the moderates. And although they share a desire to create a liberal utopia there, they have very different ideas about how that should get done. The moderates, of course, want everyone to buy in and the radicals don't care if you buy in. Uh, but what I what I learned is that there are people that have been in politics their whole careers, and my idea that I was coming from rock and roll, and and would provide a valuable outsider perspective, turned out to me at least in the course of interacting with all these people intimately, uh, maybe that's not true. Maybe my outsider perspective is um, would just be me sitting there trying to learn how to do a job that there were people who had been training their whole lives to do. A class of people that we are just innately suspicious of. Right. Oh, you were in the College Democrats? Then you're part of the machine. And what we need is, is um, Joe the car mechanic who's got, who's got a sort of talk radio wisdom who's going to come shake things up. Salt of the earth. And my God, when you're talking about how cities are run, you don't want somebody shaking it up. You know, you want a team of people that are, uh, that know how cities are run. So I'm gathering that you have a respect for the ability of career politicians. If I'm assuming you have your reservations about the ways that they use to, they choose to deploy those abilities. Well, again, it's a, it's a difference between whether you, think of the world in terms of conspiracy or mm -hmm. whether you think of the world in terms of everybody just trying really hard to do the best they can today and get home to their family. Right. And which it, I think applying Occam's razor, the evidence seems to suggest it's the second one. Right. And so you've got a bunch of people who meet in a room and they say, here's what I want to do. You know, the people in my neighborhood are demanding that sidewalks get built mm -hmm. because they don't have sidewalks. And the person across from them at the table says, well, the sidewalks in your neighborhood aren't going to make it into the budget this year. Because it turned out we had all these ex extra expenditures in dealing with the homeless encampment that's down by the football stadium. Well, that legislator goes back to his neighborhood and says, well, it's another year with no sidewalks. And the people in the neighborhood go, compromiser? You know, like, what, what special interest did you cave to, right, uh, Mr. Corrupt Legislator? But aren't those people just sort of like projecting because that's the way we talk about politics now and the politics that we think about and obsess over our national politics. And that may well be the case. I've always felt like democracy actually. I'm pretty sure Plato even said this. There's this there. I think the per, the uh, proper size for a democracy in his mind was like 10,000 people right. as somebody who, you know, culturally identifies pretty much as a New Yorker at the end of the day. I always felt like New York was just the right size. Right. It's big 10, enough. 10,000 people. <laughs> per block. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's huge, but it's just small enough that if Mayor A replaces Mayor B and goes, well, now we're going to do this instead of that, you see it. And you don't have people 3,000 miles away going, well, let me tell you why that doesn't work. Well, who, who have to come up with conspiracies and wild theories because they don't, they lack eyeball-initiated information. But that is, the, that is the premise of the United States. We have states which, ha which are independent of the federal government, and yeah. those states are meant to govern themselves. Yeah. Cities have governments to govern themselves. So really, a lot of the power, that, a lot of the decisions and the power and the cultural things that we attribute to the federal government, it's really not their... That's not them. They're yeah. not doing that. Right. They are making big sweeping decisions uh, because we have an army. But also, you know, you see what happened when you let the states do whatever they want. Some of them decide that they're going to 
they're going to continue to have slavery and try to push it into the Western states. Right. Um, so this that argument been, that having been said, it seems like we to, if we're going to bend or not break this republic, the, the, the states have to get more power than they they either currently enjoy or are perceived to currently. Well, enjoy. but we're seeing it here on the West Coast, right? The state of Washington is routinely now rebelling against the federal government on immigration, mm-hmm. on drug policy, on all kinds of social. I mean, Seattle declared itself a sanctuary city, though before it was before they'd even had a term for it, right? So uh, so Washington, California, Oregon are expressing a lot of autonomy mm-hmm. that we're very proud of. But when Alabama, Mississippi and and Louisiana express that autonomy, we're super contemptuous of yeah, it now and, we're now we're federalists again right super nervous about it right because yeah. what they what they perceive to be their autonomy and and the expression of it at, in terms of legislation that's not the united states that we hope for right and of course everybody feels defensive right washington and oregon and california uh pro- pursue a progressive agenda because we feel under assault mm-hmm. by the bad guys in the United States. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the mentality that Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana have. Every single person in America is the persecuted minority. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it's and and I think that's a side of of this like ultimate participatory democracy of the internet that we couldn't have anticipated. Right. We live in a culture where no one says I am in the majority anymore. Every single person right. is uh as you say, the persecuted minority. Yeah, and we're only bound to fracture more and more. And, I don't think so. I okay. still believe, I still have hope mm-hmm. that this is an unsustainable... Um, every single person that leaves Twitter and and takes their Facebook off their phone is a patriot fighting for justice. Um, and I feel like we could never have anticipated this 10 years ago, and where we'll be 10 years from now, I don't think is just... I don't think we can extrapolate from where we are now. No, no. Well, that's something you'll certainly find. I'm sure you've seen with with war movies. It's so uh, sci-fi. I love sci-fi. Is always about is always about the present, and it's always the assumption of where we are right now and all the excesses that we see. What if they continue to their illogical right. extent? And um, natural born killers comes to mind as everyone's like, "That's right. That's that's where this is going." You got hard copy and 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 uh, Lorena Bobbitt, and this is pretty soon the most famous person in America will be someone who goes around killing people, and it ends up being this uh, this tiny little time capsule of the the phobias of the time. I mean, kids are still reading. Fahrenheit 451, mm-hmm. uh, but the state isn't burning our books. Right, we're burning them ourselves because we feel like, oh well, we've got it all on our iPads. Yeah, now. that's exactly right. Um, I, I so many other things I wanted to talk to you about all of your other pods as well, but I have uh, run out of time, so I, I think this is where I leave you. Thank you so much for coming in here. Yeah, my pleasure. It's I should I should also give a just a, a really quick plug Please. to the Omnibus podcast, yes. which I do with Ken Jennings. The um, once and future uh, most winningest Jeopardy champion. That's right. So uh, so check out Omnibus too. It's a it's a very different show from Friendly Fire. Friendly Fire uh, across the U.S. all this month. Info on that and all four of your pods at at John Roderick. 